What does it mean that Jesus Christ is our great high priest, the greater Moses, and the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies? The new Concordia Commentary on Hebrews is the Issues Etc. Book of the Month. It's written by regular guest Dr. John Kleinig. Browse before you buy at issuesetc.org or call Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. Your pastor would deeply appreciate the new Concordia Commentary on Hebrews 1-800-325-3040. This is what Americans have been subjected to for decades. Mainstream traditional values are mocked and ridiculed and disparaged by our main media voices. We're buying every tenth of a degree Fahrenheit reduction in temperature at a price of 23.3 to 46.6 trillion dollars. When we're asked that, doggone, the reasons had better be convincing. The French Revolution had proper language at times, it had the right impetus, but it went in completely the wrong direction and it ended up as a diabolical movement rather than a just movement. When we think about our own sinfulness, we tend to be evening prayer pessimists rather than morning prayer optimists. Kindergarten teachers from Baltimore love listening to issues, etc. We may not even be aware of the challenge that we face because the challenge is often so pervasive in our society, in our lives, in education and raising our children, every facet of our lives here in America and in the West. The challenge of postmodernism might even not seem like a challenge to many. It might just seem like the world we live in, the the new normal, the new real. But for Christians, we cannot be complacent and think that we can fade into the wallpaper of our society or our culture. We have to remain challenged by the world we live in. It will not be comfortable, but it is something we face. It's part of the cross we bear, being a peculiar people in a world, regardless of our age, where we live, when we live, we will face challenge. And the age that we live in today is progressivism and postmodernism. Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. Live on this Wednesday afternoon, July the 12th. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. We're going to be doing part two of our series on raising Christian children in an age of progressivism. Pastor Jonathan Fisk of Worldview Everlasting will be our guest. A little bit later, Joy Pullman will join us, author of The Education Invasion. She's recently written a column titled Students' Riots Slashed Mizzou Enrollment 35% in Two Years watch for more. We'll talk about the results of progressivism at Mizzou and other college campuses. It's not only there. Pastor Tom Baker will round off the program with us. We'll be teaching a Sunday school lesson on Isaac and Rebecca in Genesis chapter 24. You can join us over the next two hours with your questions or your comments or call in number 1-877-623-6943. Send us an email, talkback at issuesetc.org or a tweet at issuesetc. And for our beloved on-demand listeners, when wherever you listen, use the Issues Etc. listener comment line 618-223-8382. Pastor Jonathan Fisk joins us for part two of our series on raising Christian children in an age of progressivism. He's producer of Rev Fisk Raw podcast, creative consultant for Worldview Everlasting TV, and author of the book Broken, Seven Christian Rules That Every Christian Ought to Break As Often as Possible. Jonathan, welcome back. Yeah, glad I made it. We're going to be focusing on raising children and Mm. parenting and family. But the broad challenge that postmodernism puts before 
every Christian, regardless of their circumstances. How would you describe it? What is it? I'm going to answer this a little differently than I have in the past, and it is something that we left out of the last conversation we had about this. The biggest challenge facing us in a postmodern age is that logic doesn't work anymore. And it's not that logic doesn't work to think, it's that we have entered a a whirlwind, an environment in which thinking doesn't count, at least not the way that it used to. It doesn't count in terms of finding truth. So Socrates, you know, the ancient philosopher, believed in this law of non-contradiction, and philosophy was really founded on it for a long time, that if you have two things that contradict each other, they can't be true. And if you have two things that line up, they can be true. It's how we, it's how we do most of our, our logic and our reasoning. But since World War One, if you want to date it there, if you want to date it to, to Nietzsche, it really doesn't matter. Logic is in question, and unreason is kind of winning the day, which is to say that two things can be contradictory and held as okay so long as I feel that they're okay. And that's not how Nietzsche said it, and that may not be how your friend on the internet or, or at work says it. But effectively, when you're trying to win them over, when you're trying to have a conversation with each other, what matters is far less whether or not you make any sense. What matters is how much emotion, how much passion, how much will you can build into what you're saying and convincing them of. And why this is a challenge, particularly for Christians, is we keep thinking. <laughs> well, I mean, not entirely. It's certainly we're, we're susceptible to this. But we keep wanting to engage the world with the word, with these ideas. It's not Christianity is not just an idea, but it does have ideas. And expecting others to be working on the same playing field. And we're just on a totally different playing field. And we don't have to jump straight to children, but you want to push us into children. Children are growing up drinking postmodernism from everything. And so convincing them to be people of the word in which logic and reason do have a place is particularly challenging, I would say. And I think, I know you've talked about on other shows with other guests, the catechetical crisis that's going on now. And every pastor uh, who spends any time teaching seventh and eighth graders knows what a challenge it is to get them to, well, frankly, to reason. But you can, you can win them over with the video pretty quick as long as it's funny, um, that's the challenge. Uh, it, it, I don't know if it's in a nutshell, but uh, a can of worms. Okay, so you you said the the reason this challenge is so challenging, particularly to Christians, is because we continue to uh, present the Christian message, which is, as you said, in words, and it is in, uh, I think even the Apostle talks about it, it's it's a reasonable message. It's a yeah. message that has an, a... Uh, a logic to it that really requires logic to be fully understood and appreciated. How would you respond to someone who says, well, okay, we got to change with the times. Mm -hmm. If logic doesn't, or as you say, if thinking doesn't count anymore, or logic doesn't work or people aren't using it anymore, we have to find a way of crafting that message that they will hear. So we need to take the logic out of it. We need to take the ordinary old ways of thinking out of it and kind of, suit it to fit what right. people are capable of hearing nowadays. I think it's a pretty common argument. I think it's heard a lot in a lot of different corners. And, you know, the the big elephant in a lot of people's minds might be worship, but I think it's way broader than than just worship, a liturgy, how we how we handle divine service, whatever you want to say there. The thing I would say initially is, first, we don't need to be terrified of this. 
we believe in a God who chooses us. We don't choose him. We believe in a God who, on the day of Pentecost, decided that language didn't matter and got the message of the cross across anyway, just fine on his own without us. The same God has given us, we call them the means of grace, uh, the the instruments of justification, and these words are part of that. The doctrine itself, the dogma, the teaching, however you want to say it, Paul uses the word dogma. Uh, It is one of these means. The sacraments are these means. So on the one hand, the last thing we need right now is to fall prey to the temptation to believe this is a crisis. It's not a crisis. Christianity has been in way worse places than where we are now. Um, The other thing that I would say in regards to should we change to fit with this wind is can you do so without gutting who we are? If the wind of the moment right now is, to put it in a nice term, authenticity, that's the big the big feely word, which simply means I, I feel it. I, I The will is present in, in a way that's engaged, not necessarily intellectually, but at least it's present. Can we chase authenticity while being inauthentic to who we are? It's sort of like trying to become a shadow Christianity. And for me personally, this may not, this is a, this is a thinking answer, <laughs> but this wins me over more than a lot of uh, what might be a, a persuasive argument would, is looking at the pattern of those who have, who have done this. And this isn't just the last 20 years with the church growth movement or the last 50 years with the various youth movements that have risen up. This is going all the way back to revivalism and beyond mainline church bodies, everybody who decides, you know what, times have changed. We got to adjust this just a little bit here to meet the times. Pretty sure, pretty soon that it's not that they've just adjusted a little, they've adjusted all the way. Or or to say it another way, uh, the times aren't going to meet you no matter how hard you chase them. They are going to keep going where they go. And so taking the cross out of the sanctuary to get more people to see the cross it just straight up doesn't work. And the the science, I think, is in on that matter. But see, to convince somebody who's making that argument, this is exactly the problem. They're not thinking about that argument. They have already felt that the direction to go is to change. How do we feel them back? I don't know. I don't know that I got an answer to that one. So it sounds like you're saying, okay, Christians were stuck with the word. Let's turn this to... Um I was thinking about this the other day. Turn this to probably one of the biggest challenges we discussed in our last part on on the subject of raising children in an age of progressivism, and that is the technology that mm. we're we're faced with. I do more reading nowadays than I ever did before I got a smartphone hmm. because I have to read messages, I have to read articles, news feed and social media. If I stop and think about it, as often as my eyes are on the screen, I'm reading all day long. Right. But I, I feel dumber right. when I'm done with this. Is what I'm getting there, although it comes in human language, in words I can read and you know parse out, is that part of what you're talking about here, that the technology has somehow m- become a filter that filters out thinking? Yeah. It, yes. Um the scattered nature of the reading, certainly. You and I have talked in the past on a previous series we did on, about media ecology at length. And if all your reading is coming via snippets and bites, 
your brain is not being trained to have a coherent thought. In fact, it's being trained to be literally distracted. That, that, that's what it is. And so I was just having this conversation with some coworkers. The issue isn't that the technology is making us dumber. It's that it's making us distracted, which leads to a, a dumber form of, say, productivity or, or a more lazy form of thought. The, the challenge then becomes not to abandon the technology or to cry it for itself, but to learn its rules and to learn what it's good for and what it's bad for and try to use it for what it's good for. So on the one hand, you're, you, I want to I step back just half a second and say, and, and by the way, at least we're still reading because before the internet and the smart stuff, it was just the TV. And then we were going off a cliff. I mean, there was no coming back from the, the, the fire hose of emotion that is just kind of watching something. At least now we're mentally having to be engaged a little bit. And the move into the next generation back toward things like Snapchat and Instagram is away from text again, though, which is really kind of interesting. Uh, but the tools that we have can still lead us toward thinking, but it has to be a bit more a bit more intentional. This is the, the Constantinian end as well that's been being talked about at least since the 60s, uh, which is that there was a time when the culture supported being Christian, even if it wasn't Christian. It supported church going and it supported a, a institutionalized religion. Constantine kind of is a historical marker of that in, in the 300s for Rome and, and so on. And we're now at a point where that's flipped and we're watching the culture no longer support that. To me, the, the bigger question than the technology or even the postmodernism is, are Christians ready to be different than their culture? Which gets us back to your question, don't we have to change to meet the culture? See, that's the question from someone who's not wanting to be different than the culture, I think. Now, I get it. I, I, and I, don't get me wrong either. I think we have to reach people out in the culture. And I think we maybe should question some of the things we've always done and ask, are these things we've always done because they're biblical things? And then ask if the answer is no. Are these things we've always done because they're good things? And, and that's that's important to say, well, if they're good things, maybe we should still keep doing them. But then if it's, are these things we've always done just because? Maybe every once in a while we should ask that question and and deal with the answer. Because we are in a time when, let me just throw a catechesis back out there again. It seems to be missing somehow or not hitting in some way. We obviously have to catechize our kids. How? That, that's the question. You wanted to address uh, kind of the ostrich reaction mm. to technology that many Christians have. They consume it and they say, well, I'd like to be able to control this, but you know, somehow everybody in the family ended up with a smartphone or a tablet. And I, I never planned that. I never thought that would ever happen. And so I'm just going to hope for the best that this doesn't destroy my family and my relationships. That head in the sand response. What right. do you say to it? Uh, I, it's a head in the sand. I would say, dear heavens, wake up. <laughs> you got to do something. And I'm not going to say don't give them the items. My second child who's 10 recently saved it. I don't know if I, maybe I said this in our last conversation. She recently had enough birthday money that she'd saved. The other kids spend it like it's, you know, going out of style. She saves her money and she had enough to spend it on a big chunk. And she, she wanted to get herself a Kindle. She likes to read. Our kids spend a lot of time at the library and she sees that I have a Kindle that I read before I go to bed. So she wanted one. Now, now the Kindle or the Amazon fire Kindle has a few more things on it. It has some games, you can listen to music, you can listen to issues, et cetera, on it. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm like, okay, 
well, I have a choice here as a parent. I can engage this media that's part of the media ecology in which she's going to live when she's 21, and I can set ground rules and be with her, trying to hold her hand as she learns to to walk with it, or I can I can say, no, I didn't have the option in my own head of, of being like, yeah, here, sure, have fun, see you later. I mean, that, that just wasn't in my mind. But see, maybe this is kind of, this is different than, my answer is different than your question then, because as a parent, if that's your approach to anything in parenting, we got to start over <laughs> with, with how you're approaching parenting. Where do you say, have fun, kid? I guess maybe in the 50s they did, and they let you go outside and run, you know, jump over rivers and whatnot. I read a book called Bridge to Terabithia, scared the pants out of me when I was a, a kid. You know, someone dies doing that. And now we're maybe over the other edge. People, I'm afraid to let my kids play in the front yard. There's cars going by. I don't know who's going by. Uh, you can get called up uh, by uh, by neighbors who think you're not paying attention to them. So there's there's a whole new terrifying edge to that. I'm not so I'm not advocating necessarily hover parenting, but certainly you have to believe that whatever you're putting in your children's hands, it could be a library book for Pete's sake. You need to be engaging them on what they're learning. You need to be enacting a a worldview with them. And not just kind of thrown them to the wind. And doubly so, triply so, exponentially so when you're dealing with media and media ecology. And what I want to believe, Todd, is that you mentioned earlier, you know, we're stuck with the word. The word is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. It is almighty. It is enough. These things aren't stronger than Jesus. And we are going to be church in this place in the next century. How big we are, how many of us there are. How attacked we are, I can't answer those questions, but th- there is a path through this, and it is not the knee-jerk reaction which says, you know, get off your phone and talk to a real person. The person they're talking to is a real person on the phone. They're communicating in a different way. How do I come alongside that child and be part of that conversation rather than just putting up walls? Pastor Jonathan Fisk is our guest. It's part two of our series on raising Christian children in an age of progressivism. He's producer of Rev Fisk Raw podcast, creative consultant to Worldview Everlasting, and author of the book, Broken Seven Christian Rules That Every Christian Ought to Break as Often as Possible. When we come back, we watch what they eat. We should be able to watch what they consume in terms of media, too. We'll be right back. Children are a heritage from the Lord, but what of those who've not been given the gift of a child? The cross of barrenness affects not only childless couples, it affects the family, friends, and pastors who love and care for them. I'm Katie Shurman, and I'm partnering with Emanuel Press to publish the second edition of my book, He Remembers the Barren, a story about the hope and contentment found only in Christ, no matter the cross we bear. Visit emmanuelpress.us to learn more. E-M-M-A-N-U-E-L press dot U-S. Have you been too busy to get your associate's, bachelor's, or master's degree? Concordia University, Wisconsin offers 50 online educational options. Find out more at issuesetc.org. Click the Concordia University online logo and enter the program code issues to waive your application fee. Concordia University, Wisconsin is here to strengthen and support the church. Lifelong Lutheran Learning. Issuesetc.org and click Concordia University, Wisconsin online. Daily exercise for the Christian mind. 
You're listening to Issues Etc. If you've ever wondered why Amazing Grace is the national anthem of funerals or pondered the state of your eternal soul after you die, the Lutheran Witness has got you covered. Check out the June-July issue of The Lutheran Witness to learn more about death, dying, heaven, and hell. Not a subscriber? Visit cph.org slash trylutheranwitness for a special offer. $6.99 for six digital or print issues. The Lutheran Witness, interpreting the contemporary world from a Lutheran perspective. If you're like me, you remember when education was about the basic skills of reading, writing, and arithmetic, and about reading great literature and history that gave our kids models of what it is to be a good person. Memoria Press's Classical Christian Curriculum is bringing this kind of education back. Get $5 off your next order by using the coupon code LPR. For more information, go to memoriapress.com. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkins, part two of our series on raising Christian children in an age of progressivism. Pastor Jonathan Fisk of Worldview Everlasting is our guest. Jonathan, you were talking before the break about engaging your kids in, in the use of media. And it occurred to me, for the most part, we watch what they eat. Hmm. We, we pay attention. We're careful about it. Maybe not so much you as a father. I'm certain that your wife is that's one of her concerns. What are, what are these kids eating? And are they eating okay? And if we have that kind of attention for what they take into their bodies in terms of nutrition, right? it seems equal, at least equal attention could be paid to what they're taking in to their minds and hearts in terms of the media. And you would think, and you don't want me to get started on nutrition, by the way, that's a pet peeve of mine, but the, if I, my, I've, I've got my wife turned over backwards uh, on this one, but you would think parents kind of have a have a as you and you said it so well. I don't. It's more what you said than even the response to it. It's native to us to say, "Don't put that in your mouth," or "No, you can't have a snack right now before bed," because it's obviously wrong. So part of my own fear for us, for all of us, is not what do we do, but. Why are we not asking that or natively having those concerns for our kids about how they think? Why is it that we don't have a knee-jerk reaction to, no, of course you can't visit this, that, or the other church. That's that's something we don't even ask anymore. Well, that means, I mean, in my, as a parent, the reason I say these things to my kids is because of what I'm doing. I'm applying my own life natively to them. It's just, duh, that would be dumb to do what you're about to do. Don't do that because I wouldn't do that. But if you're not willing to say that about your religion, well, then is it is it your religion? Do you know your religion? Do you know what you believe and why you believe it, to borrow someone else's phrase? And that's a, I don't think we can ever stop asking that question. I think part of being a Christian is to ask that question every morning, uh, to, to be brought back to the, the repentance which acknowledges, I don't know enough. I haven't believed enough. And certainly then in that, though, yeah, how much should we comparatively be watching their their nutrition, their food versus their worldview. I don't think there's any question that the worldview is eternally more significant than what you eat. You can eat a really bad nutritional diet and be a Christian. It's it's quite possible. You you cannot spend eternity in paradise 
and not know the catechism. When we think about the, the technology with our kids, what I think most people go to is the most obvious threats, the stuff that is either mentally, morally corrosive that's out there that they might land upon. But the more subtle threats are the ones that we may not even recognize. Mm -hmm. And you would just use that word worldview, that there are worldviews being fed to all of us, including our children, every single day. And it's not like someone is saying, here are the five principles of this worldview. Mm -hmm. It's, And it's not like even the purveyors of these worldviews are out to teach a worldview. They're just, it's their opinions, it's their ideas. But it's in our schools. Mm. It's obviously in the media. And it's going to be in the families that we interact with, mm -hmm. things like that. Where I think we used to, I think uh, back in when I was a kid, it wasn't even thought of as a worldview. It was just thought about as values. Right. But really, it's broader than just values. Talk a little bit about how I think the best defense is a good offense when it comes to inculcating yeah. a worldview. Yeah, with your kids especially. I want to give an example, I think, of what you were just talking about, though. I think that subtle things are more dangerous. My kids went to a public school when we were in the Dakotas. We homeschool now. We've done Lutheran school in the past as well. They went to public school, and most people, I think, who send their kids to a public school they and realize that I've got to do some teaching at home, otherwise this isn't going to be good, which you can do that as a Christian. Uh, most people who did that do that. I think what they're really worried about is, say, evolution. They're going to teach my kid evolution. Or maybe now, you know, homosexuality in kindergarten, something like that, which, okay, yeah, big deal. But the thing that bothered me most about watching my couple of children spend their time in that school was not those things, because those were like big, giant targets. They come home, and that one's like, oh, obviously, we can talk about this. It was the more subtle things. And the thing that, that the moment when I kind of had my own, yeah, I think I'm done with this moment, I pulled out an old video game system and was showing my kids one of the games I used to play when I was a, about their age, Legend of Zelda, A Link to the Past. And I got to, I think, maybe the, the second boss of this game that has many, many, many bosses, and I'd beat it hands down over and over again as a kid. I get to the second boss, and I just go round and round with this thing. I cannot beat it. And like an hour goes by. I've died so many times. <laughs> and my kids are watching, and they're laughing, and then they're pulling for me, and some are finally leaving, and then they're coming back. And finally I got mad and I shouted out loud. Uh, I'll try, I'll, I'll use some really uh, soft language here. You know, I'm really bad at this. Is why, is why I was worse than that. But I, I shouted out loud, I'm really bad at this in American language. And my child turns to me and says, don't say that. Never tell yourself you're bad at anything. And that was the moment when I thought, dear heavens, they've got her. They've took her from me. I need to get her back. <laughs> yeah. Because she she had bought into this power of affirmation positive thinking. I am I am good if I try to be good. I can succeed at all things. Anti-bully stuff. Bully, bullying is a problem, but it was that all people can be good if we just believe we're good stuff. That scared the bejeebies out of me. Uh, and I, I told her right away, I, we, I stopped playing. We had a conversation at that moment. But it, that's such a subtle thing. And that was day in and day out. That wasn't one class. That was all day, every day they were giving her that. There are two levels to that. I mean, I'm, I'm listening to that secondhand conversation, and I'm thinking, okay, first of all, just in civil terms, the notion that you should never say you're bad at anything is nonsense, okay? I'm bad at a lot of things. Mm. I, I, I do what I'm good at, and the testimony to the fact that I'm bad at a lot of things is I don't do them, 
Okay. Yeah. And I don't have to anymore. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, climbing the rope in PE, don't have to do that anymore. Wasn't good at it in the first place. And I knew it and everybody else knew it. So it's not even a realistic self-assessment. Mm. But I'm thinking also in pastoral terms, I, as a Christian, I have to be able to admit right. my shortcomings, my failings, and my sins. Right. Right. Is that what you were worried about? Yes. Both those things. And the fact that it was in the water again. It, it was. This wasn't something that they had a class on, really. It was just the constant barrage of a certain worldview that was so counter to my own and so counter to what at least the, the, the dutiful virtuousness of Protestant America had, had taught, which would have been that first thing that you, you know, you could, or even science teaches that you improve things by finding where you're wrong in the test, right? And which, and they still test the kids. It wasn't like anyone really applied this across the board, but it was, it was a way of, I think, softening the emotional resistance to new ideas. Ultimately, if I'm going to say on a diabolical level, I don't think somebody's up in an office somewhere saying that, but I think that's what's going on is that you, you make individuals malleable by telling them that all the truth is happy all the time so that they're willing to just kind of follow along provided they get the carrot at the end of it. Much of what our education system was built into being by Dewey is just that. Like, here's a carrot, go get it. And it, it doesn't necessarily teach knowledge. It doesn't necessarily teach thinking. It used to be designed to teach thinking. That's what the classic liberal arts did. But it became designed instead to teach obedience because a factory doesn't need a thinker. A factory needs an obedient worker. And that's what the, the system that we have is. But back then you had duty and virtue and there's a God and there's a right and a wrong. And now we don't have any of that. We just have this will to power idea, which is that whatever you feel is what you ought to be. You can be whatever your dreams tell you to be, all this kind of stuff. I mean, it's, it's a mess, Todd. The, the further we go on this, the less I feel like I really am even equipped to talk about it. Okay. I want to pick up on something you said there when you when your daughter had made that comment about don't ever tell yourself that you're bad at anything and your reaction was they've got her yeah and i think that's one of the biggest concerns that christian parents ought to have and Mm -hmm. that is there are people and some of them actually have plans yeah i'm convinced that their college administrations in their private closed door meetings are talking about separating these young college freshmen from their parents and from their families, yeah. at least ideologically, breaking those chains. But then there's that subtler form of it where they want our kids. They want the next generation because yeah. aren't we certain that behind all of this, it is truly diabolical? Yeah. Doesn't the devil want the next generation of kids? Yeah, that's exactly it. He's happy to give us our, our best life mostly now. If we'll just sit back, relax, and assume that we can we can have it, and while heterodoxy, I mean, going on like a, on a more floating level, heterodoxy doesn't always kill the faith of the person who thinks it or proposes it, but you give that thing a couple generations, and it'll kill an entire church body. And so, in the same way, you know, the devil does play the long game. This gets us back a little bit to like this isn't a crisis kind of thing. Like we should be playing the long game too. Because our Lord is playing the longest game, but the devil plays the long game. He knows his time is short, but it's longer than your life, probably, possibly. And he's willing to sit back and let ideas float and stew and grow and move, waiting for that moment when he can detach us from, from our baptism into Christ. 
And the way that happens, this kind of brings us back to where we where we started. The way that happens is that he removes words from you. And we live in an age in which we are losing and experiencing the loss of words. Where we don't have truth, we have truthiness. We don't have facts, we have alternative facts. Both sides of every argument are screaming at each other that the other side is the one that's lying, while both sides are lying. Both sides are spinning at the very least. What are we to do as Christians? Well, it's the same answer we started with as well. We continue to believing that the power of the word is greater than our own chaos, that the, that the babble which we live in loses at the day of Pentecost where baptism forgives and the word is preached and the people gather around the apostles' teaching and the breaking of the bread to, to hunker down on that. But then believing that, you don't sit back and not give eternal life to your child. <laughs> you don't sit back and, and not speak about it to your child. And that's, uh, that's no easy task. Nobody, nobody said that raising children was easy. So just because the game changed doesn't mean you're off the hook from having to learn how to play. Well, speaking of words, when we come back, we're going to turn to some words of the Apostle Paul that he wrote to the Colossians several millennia ago. Very simple words about wives and husbands and then Children, obeying your parents in all things, for this pleases the Lord. Talking about fathers and mothers. We'll turn to those words, and with those, we'll try and kind of regain our footing in a postmodern age against the challenge of progressivism for parents and for their families. Stay tuned. There's a prayer each night that I always pray. Let the data guide me through every day and every pulse and every cold. Deliver me from the bypass mode. Christians should operate fully in the public square, and that includes by engaging with the media. Molly Hemingway talking about her joint presentation at the 2017 Fall Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. And one of the things that they can do is encourage reporters to report things accurately and truthfully. They can express their opinions in letters to the editor and op-eds. And one of the things that's important is to just let people in the world know of the differences of opinion that are out there, that Christians don't share a lot of the secular thinking that is promulgated by the media. And so being bold and being able to stand up and simply speak truth in the public square, it's a powerful witness to others, and it's a service you can perform for your community and the country at large. You can meet and hear Molly and Mark Hemingway making the case for Christians engaging the news media at our Fall Making the Case conference November 10th and 11th in Houston, Texas. Learn more at issuesetc.org. Peace Evangelical Lutheran Church of Chehalis, Washington. Biblical, historic Christianity, whose source is Scripture, whose heart is the Gospel. If you're in Southwest Washington, join us for the divine service. You will receive Jesus, crucified and risen again for the forgiveness of your sins. We promise. For more information, call us at 360 748 4108. If you've ever attended an Issues Etc. conference or any number of events that take place across the Synod and have wondered why more people from my congregation aren't here, check out the special seminar package the CLCC is offering for the 500th anniversary. 
all you need so the pastors of your circuit can organize, promote, and present a seminar that appeals to the members of your congregation, even the youth, is provided free by the CLCC. Just go to the CLCC.org and click on the blue box, or check us out on Facebook. Confessional Lutherans, we've got your back. You're listening to Issues Etc. Our school is committed to authentic Lutheranism, the entire Book of Concord, and indeed to authentic Lutheranism as it has continued to be confessed and practiced through the centuries, right up into our own time. Dr. Cameron McKenzie, Chairman of the Department of Historical Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. We're committed then to biblical, confessional Christianity and Lutheranism and applying it to the world of today in as effective a way as we can. You can find out more about studying for the pastoral ministry at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, at ctsfw.edu, ctsfw.edu, or call 1-800-481-2155. Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Welcome back to Issues Etc. It's part two of our series on raising Christian children in an age of progressivism. I'm Todd Wilkin. Pastor Jonathan Fisk is our guest, producer of Rev Fisk Raw Podcast, creative consultant to Worldview Everlasting, and author of the book Broken, Seven Christian Rules That Every Christian Ought to Break as Often as Possible. You'll find a link to it right there at our website, issuesetc.org. Click Listen on Demand. You can also call Concordia Publishing House any weekday during regular business hours and order Broken. Their number, 1-800-325-3040, 1-800-325-3040. Ask for Broken, Seven Christian Rules That Every Christian Ought to Break as Often as Possible. Let's go to Indiana and talk to Matt, who's listening there. Hi, Matt. Hey, pastors. Uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, question for you. You're talking about the subtleties uh, that we can sometimes spot in our children, you know, the, from the influences of postmodernism. So I've got a couple questions. One is, how critical is it for us dads to delve into learning how postmodernism works and how deconstruction works so we can spot those subtleties? And the other question is related to, uh, you guys were talking about catechesis. How critical is it for us dads to be showing our kids that we ourselves are memorizing our catechisms, that we're studying our scriptures, um, that we are um, serious about our Christian faith um, and, uh, and seeing our children catechized in those ways? Two very good questions, Matt. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening in Indiana. Let's deal with those two questions. Now, use the term that I, that I want you to explain. That sure. is deconstruction. Yeah. It's part of kind of the method of postmodernism. But first of all, define that for us. What is deconstruction? Deconstruction is a manner of arguing which questions statements into absurdity until eventually you you give up on your statement having meaning and and you're basically at a point where you're willing to let the other person tell you what it really is. It's a bit of a dishonest play because you can, by being unreasonable, question everything into unreasonableness. The, the crazy thing about it is that the person who's using deconstruction still thinks they have a reason for doing it and will still want you to believe what they say next. So in short, though, it's it's a constant stream of questioning the truth, whether with facts or with willpower doesn't matter, 
until you yourself question it and then replacing what has just been deconstructed, reconstructing some new worldview on top of that. It's it's a it's a, an attempt you find it in art, in music, in mm. in the in the arts generally. You find it in literature, you find it in food. Yeah. It's taking an existing thing apart ostensibly into its elements to kind of explore it, but it never gets put back together the right way. You've heard it kind of in a practical way. You know, Paul shouldn't be listened to when he talks about the roles of women because he was a misogynist living in a, a patriarchal culture. That has removed Paul two steps from what he said by pointing to two other things that may or may not actually be true. I think neither of them are really fully true in order to d- disingenuize the value of what he actually said. So the question that Matt has is, how important is it for Christian fathers to learn how postmodernism works so that they can recognize that those things, those tricks, when they're being played? I think both of these questions are tremendously important and insightful. They're good questions to be asking. The answer, though, is going to start not where we want it to be in that. And we talked about this last time, too, and I want to make sure this is really understood as we, as we go forward with this series, that there is a difference between a principle and a, a strategy, or a strategy and a tactic, excuse me. And the strategy is this principle, it's this larger idea, and a tactic is how it gets applied. And both of these questions are going to have different tactics for different people. So particularly, and I think this is the first question is a good place to, to show this, how much should an individual man or woman learn postmodern theory in order to teach postmodern theory as wrong to their children. Well, as much as you can. Not everybody is going to be equally equipped to do that. You may not need to be able to define deconstruction or or see it to be able to smell that something's wrong. And I'll borrow from a, a mutual friend of ours, uh, Chris Roseborough here, uh, example he's used in the past, I think is very, very helpful, which gets us back to our second question, which is when he was being trained to be a bank teller and they gave him a a training on how to spot counterfeit bills. They didn't spend a lot of time showing him the counterfeit bills. He was kind of disappointed. He was hoping to see a bunch of that. Instead, they spent hours teaching about touching, smelling, dealing with real bills. And then they brought in a stack of bills and they said, find the counterfeit. And he didn't think he would be able to, but he found it immediately because he spent so much time in the real thing that even though he didn't know the details of the wrong thing, it, it smelled wrong. And just to kind of paraphrase that. And so it's not that you shouldn't ever study the counterfeit bill at all, but the real thing is, is far more important. Certainly, though, the tactics, a first step that anyone can take is to teach a child to understand that if they're going to go off to a college classroom, the college classroom is going to be run by a assertion mode that puts you in a place of weakness and the teacher in a place of power in which if you find yourself in disagreement with them and they know about it, there's a very good chance that they will try to exert that power through a force of will. They won't necessarily have to prove anything in the classroom. They will simply have to assert it. And that if you get into a conversation with somebody afterwards, they will probably natively take up the deconstruction mode of, of arguing, which is to question you, question you, question you, throw in a curveball comment that's an assertion question, not necessarily have a discussion with you. So if anything, you don't necessarily have to define deconstruction, but know that teach your child to see that antagonists in a postmodern age are not looking for a discussion or a conversation. They're disingenuous in that. 
They don't know that. They may not even know that, but they are. They're looking to win. This gets us back to you know the, the age of logic not working. What matters is that I win. And any tactic that gets me there, that's the will to the power for me. Yeah, I think we should all do as much as we can to convey something of that idea to the child that you have who has certain intellectual gifts, certain tactile gifts, certain physical gifts that mine may not have or may have. So I don't want to get in a position, though, where I'm telling every child, well, you better go pick up you know, Gene Veith's Postmodern Times and dig through it, even though it's, it's a phenomenal read, but it's a, it's a mother load. <laughs> it's a mother load. But if you can, yeah, to, as far as you can, do what you can. He also asks about, uh, in a sense, kind of modeling this being a lifelong student of the catechism, important, the, the importance of fathers demonstrating to their children that, that, he, that dad's still learning. Dad is still studying the catechism. Yeah. I might betray, or not. my analogy here may not work because I'm going to ask you a question, Todd, but we, we were talking in the, in the break a little bit and you mentioned baseball season. And what I would like to know is, you know, how, how many of your kids root for the same baseball team as you? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> well, my daughter does because she's permitted. Her her husband's also a Cardinals fan. So okay, she has no choice. She has no interest in baseball, and my son has less interest in baseball. Okay. But I have been able to exert my influence on my wife. I didn't have to convince her much. Well, if your son has less influence in baseball, though, if he comes over and the Cardinals are playing, does he root for the other team? No, no, no. Of course not. So okay, so that's my point. Like, even if the kid doesn't care much, it rubbed off because you cared. And out of just kind of native respect for you, right? he's going to care more about the Cardinals than he cares about, say, the Pirates. If he doesn't care about the Cardinals, he really doesn't care about the Pirates. Yeah. Right? Yeah, true. <laughs> uh, and again, how are you going to show this to your kids? I don't know. You're going to have to ask that question. But don't you think that the kids should see you caring about what you believe and why you believe it? At least as much as you care about the many other things in your life, which are laudable and valuable and good, but are not this. So is that every night after dinner, reading the catechism out loud to the kids? Or I don't know how you would have them see you memorizing it. I guess you just recite it to them. Maybe. Sure. If that works for you. I've tried that one and I'm really bad at that. Just the, just the sit down structured reading moment. So that's not the approach I've taken. Uh, my wife is really good at that, so she does do that with the kids, and I'm really thankful for that because I'm afraid my approach might not be as good. My approach has been, instead, every chance I get that it seems relevant to engage their mind with with the pertinent questions so that after dinner, when we're just sitting there goofing off, talking about whatever they watched on Netflix at some point, whatever, with mom, and one of them asks a question that's even remotely connected to a spiritual thing, I'll try to insert a bit into it. Or especially if one of them asked, I'm trying to remember what the our, our third child asked just the other night. It, w- it was a very specific pointed eight-year-old, seven-year-old question. And I stopped the family conversation. I stopped eating, put my fork down, and I answered the question. And then we talked for, I don't know, five, seven minutes about it. But I made very clear that, oh, even even though, and this is this is kind of important too, I think, in my house, I don't want to talk at dinner. I want to eat. 
I'm hungry. I'm, I, they've all had snacks at four. I haven't. I want to eat. So when we get, we sit down, I get the food. I just start eating and they talk. They, mm-hmm. they blah, blah, blah. We watch this. Ha, ha, ha. You need to talk this. Play with the chickens. Blah, blah, blah. I don't care. So if I stop and put my fork down and I just start having a conversation that seriously, that alone says, whoa, mm-hmm. he cared about that. Right. And we'll try to talk out. It's not like I don't have any conversation after dinner, but, but how do you demonstrate to your children that you care about this? And I don't think that there's only one answer to that, and it's, you know, we read the catechism at this time. The answer is, though, I confess the catechism in my life, in my words, and I let them know that. Oh, yeah, you don't, in one sense, this is the baseball image again, though. You don't have to just figure out how to let them know you confess the catechism if you confess the catechism, in one sense. You're going to do it. So, again, the question becomes, are we doing it? And that's the terrifying thing to me. We're often not even thinking about it at all. Hmm. We'll take another break. When we come back, we're going to conclude part two of our series on raising Christian children in an age of progressivism. Pastor Jonathan Fisk is our guest, producer of Rev Fisk Raw podcast and creative consultant to Worldview Everlasting. Stay tuned. We know that you want to build your family on the right foundation from the very start, the foundation of Jesus Christ. Concordia Publishing House offers more than 8,000 products for churches, schools, and homes, dedicated customer service, and an experienced staff to help you focus on what matters most. Click to connect at cph.org. Concordia Publishing House, listening, responding, providing for God's people. Concordia Publishing House, cph.org. Do you have a student finishing up eighth grade at a Lutheran school? Do you wish there were a Lutheran high school close to where you live so your student could continue going to a Lutheran school? What if there was an opportunity for high school students in public or Lutheran school to take classes like Latin, logic, and hard-hitting theology courses? Well, there is. It's called Wittenberg Academy, the first completely online classical Lutheran high school. Visit our website, wittenbergacademy.org, to find out more. Providing artillery support for the church militant on the front lines, you're listening to Issues Etc. The Lutheran Church Missouri Synod celebrates and affirms life from the time of conception until natural death and every time in between. For this reason, LCMS Life Ministry is a program singularly devoted to upholding the sanctity of human life, both in our church body and the culture at large. Life Ministry provides educational materials, hosts conferences, and works closely with allies such as Lutherans for Life. For more information, visit lcms.org life and follow LCMS Life Ministry on Facebook. Did you know that Luther Academy has been providing continuing education for confessional Lutheran pastors and laypeople worldwide for more than 20 years? Luther Academy publishes Logia, the Confessional Lutheran Dogmatic Series, and Luther Digest. Find out more about Luther Academy and sign up to receive their free email newsletter at lutheracademy.com. Lutheracademy.com and like them on Facebook. Facebook.com slash Lutheracademy. I have a king of my kingdom. I have a king of my kingdom. 
Issues, etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. It's part two of our series on raising Christian children in an age of progressivism with Pastor Jonathan Fisk. We had promised to get to this text here, and I, and I wanted you also wanted to talk about there's kind of a structure here, which is simply assumed by Paul when he writes to the Colossians, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. What would you take from those words pertinent to our conversation? To me, well, first, all of it, uh, the, the the word that strikes me as a parent is that word provoke and discouraged. Because day in and day out, the place where I am most bothered is when I see the discouragement of my children. When I see my attempts to discipline them and by that, I just mean provide a structure to their life in which they have more than what they want. And I don't mean like above and beyond what they want. Like they're not getting everything they want all the time, quite the opposite, where they have limitations that will teach them about how we live in a limited world, where they have learning in and of itself. And I see how they, as first off sinners, we didn't talk about this really yet either, but everything we said about postmodernism is true of sinners in general. It's just now we've got a theory to make it okay. <laughs> we've justified it in a way. And so they're, they're, you don't have to teach your children to be postmoderns in, in two senses. And, and one of them is that they're going to be willful. They're going to be self-driven. They're going to be more emotional than, than logical. It took mankind a long time to figure logic out. And we lived in, the, in darkness quite a bit. So watching them be discouraged at my attempts to be a father, this text comes and hits me like sideways. Because on the one hand, as a Christian, I, I love its call to me to be a good parent. But then at the same time, it, it condemns me. So I think what I what I first want to say out there is don't let its condemnation of you, the law's condemnation of you, which is going to happen, like Semper Acusa, it's always going to accuse you. Don't let that steal from you the goodness that is here. And this isn't the only place Paul talks about this. In Ephesians 5, he talks about raising them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Not, not, not the ESV translation, but the way it used to be said. That there is a, a beauty and a value in pursuing intentionality as a parent. And that this isn't just a, a an artsy thing or a choicey thing. This is a command from God. You don't have an option here. It's kind of like when Luther talks about prayer in the introduction to the Lord's Prayer and the Lord's Catechism. You know, the first reason to pray, God said so. <laughs> he kind of leaves it at that, right? And the second reason, he's going to answer you. That's uh, That one we like. You know, he's going to answer me. But the God said so part, th- there's something about duty. And this is, we've lost duty. Underneath the I wants, we've lost the it's better if I do this instead feel, which used to, again, drive us. So there's a duty here. The third thing that I would I would throw into that mix is, and the reason we read the wives and husbands part, or I suggest we read that, and really, and what comes next is bond servants and masters. It doesn't mention masters here. Masters are in Ephesians five. Same structure in both in both books. Is that there is a broader reality of vocation, which is founded on authority, going on in this text, 
That's why Paul isn't just a misogynist. He actually b- believes in authority and that there are structures or vocations of authority that are given. And in that, if we're going to get real kind of nitty-gritty with one of the things that bothers me most as a father of children watching other parents of children out there, or whether it's at a restaurant, wherever, is I think the average parent today does not believe they have authority over their child. Not when they're a young child. Maybe when they're about 15, they try. <laughs> but, but when they're a, a kid, they don't. They literally think the kid gets to say no to them. That's not what this text says. Let's pick up on the other side of the break. If we could do about five minutes on the other side of the break to conclude that thought. Pastor Jonathan Fisk is our guest on this Wednesday afternoon, July the 12th, part two of our series on raising Christian children in an age of progressivism. And when we come back, we'll pick up right there. I think we could call that, what, an abdication of authority. We'll be right back. Where doctrine is life. You're listening to Issues Etc. Trinity Orchard Farm is settled between two rivers showing the way to the water of life. For worship that is reverent, relevant, and refreshing like pure water, or for excellent education in a unique setting, check out our church and school. We're just five miles north of Highway 370 on Highway 94 in St. Charles County. Visit us on the web at trinityorchardfarm.com. That's trinityorchardfarm.com. Our phone number is 636 650-3350. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. A few more minutes here with Pastor Jonathan Fisk on this Wednesday afternoon, part two of our series on raising Christian children in an age of progressivism. Then Joy Pullman of the Federalist Rejoice to talk about the results of progressivism at the University of Missouri, their enrollment is down 35% since they let the students take over the university, and they're not alone. And then we'll be talking with Pastor Tom Baker, teaching a Sunday school lesson on Rebecca and Isaac in Genesis chapter 24. Pick up where you left off on the abdication of authority. You're describing parents that don't think they have authority over their kids, especially in light of that Colossians 3 passage. I'd like to revisit this with the series going forward because I think it's a it's a box that's got a lot of lot of depth to it. But the idea that and is it an idea or is it just a lack of an idea that somehow the way to raise a child is to allow the child to do what the child wants? And I've never had anybody actually say that out loud to me. Actually, maybe I have. I've heard of this like affirmative teaching. You never tell the child no, you just tell them, you know, yes, or you just distract them and point them to different things. So I guess I've had heard people say that. But what I see again when I'm out in public is a mother or a father or both with a child, sometimes sometimes they're as, as old as, as eight or 10, but yeah, just imagine a three-year-old or a two-year-old. And it is evident, and it's evident to everybody else, say, in the restaurant at that moment, that that child is running the table. And they're doing it by throwing a fit that everybody else in the restaurant can hear. And I'm always kind of in a marvelous wonderment at the patience of these parents because I, I could not be that patient. But also asking the question, do, do they not know that even with like a, a one-year-old, you can, you can be 
reveal a little bit of upsetness, a little bit of anger, displeasure. Put your finger over your lips and say, shh. And it will startle the child. It will make the child think, oh, did I do something wrong? And then you can talk to the child in a whispered but stern voice. We don't behave that way out in public like that. Ideally, we don't behave that way ever, right? But we don't make that noise at restaurants. Or maybe it's just we don't make that noise. You know, my son, whom I love, did what all sons do and screamed. Because all boys kind of do that as they're getting older, when they're young, young, young. They make this noise. I think it's so great. And yeah, we had to live with that in the house for a little while. But not for long. We talked to him about it. We kept working with him at it. Now he's running with sticks. Now we're working with him on not doing that one, right? And it's it's just part of the process. But you can't do that if you don't believe you have authority over the child. And what, what again, terrifies me about it, we, have, we seem to have a generation being raised by parents who don't believe they have that. And what does that mean for the, the children? How, how incompetent will we be when we don't know how to learn or how to be wrong, as we were talking about earlier? I, I think this is just something that, that can't be talked about enough. With about a minute here, we often hear, well, an argument for exercising authority is where the child wants you to assert that authority. But that's kind of getting it backwards, isn't it? That may well be true. Right. But the real reason to exercise that authority is because God's given it yeah. to you for the good of the child. Yeah, it's funny because it still puts it back on as if the child's going to run the things. And if it didn't want you to, you wouldn't do it. God gave parents to children to protect them. And it's evident from the moment the baby comes out of the womb, without the parent, the kid's going to die. That continues on a different level. Initially, it's wiping their bum and giving them food, but it becomes training them up in the way they should go, which means all things. It means finding work for their hands. It means finding a spouse to marry. It means helping them to to discover uh, what their mind is good for. And then above and kind of over and around and in with and under all of that is believing in who you should believe in, trusting in who God really is. And your authority as a parent is God granted is divine right, not for you, not so you get something out of being a parent, but for them, that they would also join you in the life of the world to come. And for me, I mean, as, as much of a failure as a parent as I, I feel like I am on a day in, day out basis, that is my, my final prayer and hope. Really, the only, only reason I care, I suppose, is because I believe I'm going to be there. And because I'm selfish, I want, I want them there, too. Pastor Jonathan Fisk is the producer of Rev Fisk Raw podcast, creative consultant to Worldview Everlasting, and author of the book, Broken, Seven Christian Rules That Every Christian Ought to Break as Often as Possible. Next time, we'll talk with him about the misappropriation and continue talking with him about the abdication of authority on the part of the parents. Jonathan, thank you very much for being here. Thanks for having me on. When we come back, Joy Pullman of The Federalist will join us to talk about what's been the result of letting the students run the university at the University of Missouri. Remember, they were famous for the Black Lives Matter and the rise of progressivism on the campus spread to many other campuses as well. For Missouri, it's been pretty much a disaster in every way you can possibly think about. And we'll talk about where it comes from and what parents ought to do facing sending their kids off to the university when they might just go there to be schooled in progressivism. Then we'll be teaching a Sunday school lesson with Pastor Tom Baker on Genesis 24, Isaac and Rebecca.
LCMS Disaster Response provides guidance and assistance to congregations who seek to proclaim the gospel and show mercy in the wake of disasters. We can bring capacity to your congregation through on-site assessment, volunteer training and congregation preparedness, and through grants direct to your congregation. For more information, follow us on Facebook, keyword LCMS Disaster Response, or visit our website at lcms.org disaster. That's lcms.org disaster. At Concordia University, Irvine, you can pursue advanced theological study for academic, professional, or personal development. Concordia's Master of Arts in Theology program is grounded in the truth of Scripture and insights from the Lutheran Confessions. Courses are taught online and at intensive on-campus sessions in the summer. Apologetics, Christian education leadership, and Reformation studies are just a few of the emphases offered. For more information, visit cui.edu slash theology. Educating a new generation of Lutherans, you're listening to Issues Etc. Silicon Valley is a place of cutting-edge innovation which radically changes lives, where science fiction is already in research and development. In the heart of this digital chaos is a sanctuary of constancy and reverence, Hope Lutheran in Fremont, where nothing is new under the California sun where the timeless gospel is proclaimed and the sacrament is celebrated with the historic liturgy that truly changes lives. And thanks to Silicon Valley, you may find us on the web at hopelutheranfremont.org. People are talking about the Lutheran Federal Credit Union. Lutheran FCU was created solely to serve LCMS workers, families, and entities, and proceeds benefit LCMS organizations. Lutheran FCU offers deposit accounts and loans and has service access at thousands of branches and ATMs nationwide. Lutheran FCU also offers members Christian-based lending advice for new loans and refinancing, minimal account fees, and superior personalized service. Check them out at lutheranfcu.org.